There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham. Now, first and foremost, I want to say a big thank you for all the lovely feedback on the Claire Williams podcast. It was a real pleasure to chat to Claire. You know, she's had a tough time recently with the team languishing at the back of the grid. And I think I speak for all of us when I say that we wish her the best and we hope Williams are back at the front where they belong very soon. Claire is such a great role model, a trailblazer in fact, for women, not just in Formula One, but in business and beyond. And I want to say thank you from a personal point of view as well, because, you know, sometimes I'm completely knackered and I'm trying to spin too many plates as a working mum and I drop a few and actually chatting to Claire kind of really inspired me and boosted me and made me want to keep pushing and work harder. So thank you so much, Claire. Okay, next up on In The Pink, it is Nick Doherty. Now, many of you will know Nick from the world of golf. He was an incredibly talented young golfer with the world at his feet, a long career stretching out in front of him. Until one tragic day, his mum died, very suddenly, at a very young age. And it sent Nick into a spin. His game basically unravelled. In fact, it was such an extraordinary case of the yips. He went from winning tournaments to barely being able to hit a ball. On this podcast, he talks candidly about the process of rebuilding and trying to sort of redefine himself in many ways because golf is all he's ever known and he's done that to great effect so I think Nick will be a true inspiration for many of you listening. I certainly loved our time together. Um, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Nick Doherty on In The Pink. Well, Nick, here we are um, at your gorgeous golf club, Wentworth. I mean, it feels... I don't know whether I'm just, you know, harking back to yesteryear here, but I remember coming to a golf club with my grandfather years ago and I wasn't allowed to step over a line into a separate bar area because no girls, no women were allowed. Is it at all like that anymore? No. No, Wentworth's great like that. Um, The cool thing about Wentworth that makes it a bit different is that I was uh, uh, used to going to those sorts of golf clubs as a junior. And as a junior, you didn't get treated very well back in the day. Golf has changed quite a lot since. There's still a few clubs that are a bit old-fashioned, but this isn't one of them. So um, we're actually at the moment discussing internally 
um, with the membership and well not me that makes it sound like I'm in part of that discussion I'm one of the members that's voiced an opinion as well on whether or not we can wear denim Ooh, at the club right. which is some people would scoff at that in golfing background because it just doesn't fit with the tradition but if you want it to make it a truly social club that people come for a pint here and come for a drink at night and a bite to it and it is like that the vibe here is very social uh, you need to make it so that people can come wherever they are, mm. you know. So that's one of the things they've done. I mean, it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, it's got, it's got an amazing history. We're in the Curtis Cup room here. Uh, and we've had all sorts of events here, including the Ryder Cup. We have the PGA here every year as well. Uh, it's really cool. It's, it, I mean, it's a it's a massively... Um, I was trying to think how I would bill it as a... Um, it's it's an ultimate luxury item, being a member at Wentworth, mm. because it's um, it's not something that's cheap for people, but... Um, you get to experience something pretty awesome all the time. I'm very lucky to be an ambassador for them. Mm, I can tell. I'll, uh, <laughs> I, I can put a word in for you, but I don't know if it'll help. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm past any kind of help when it comes to golf. Um, although, I, I have to say, going back to my grandfather, he was a scratch golfer and I think would have been immensely proud had I followed in his footsteps. Um, either me or my brother. Or actually, he, was, he had four daughters. He has four daughters. He's passed away now, but... Um, so even if any of them had followed in his footsteps, I'm sure he would have loved it. He wrote books about golf, for God's sake. Really? And well, none that. of us had, well, I don't know, but sort of just golfing That's related. Good, yeah, yeah. But I think we've sort of a massive disappointment to him, really. I'm sorry about that, Grandpa. Well, yeah, you know, it's, um, it's a difficult sport, isn't it? Because it takes loads of time. Yeah. It's not one you can dabble with. Um, so I noticed this with my brother, because my brother Marcus is a, a, like a real hot shot in New York, uh, and he's a brilliant, brilliant corporate lawyer, right at the top of his trade. But he plays golf occasionally, and our whole family has always golfed, and he is, to say he's the worst in the family doesn't do it justice to quite how bad he is compared to the rest of us, because my mum was, was half decent, my dad was a really good golfer, and of course I played on tour. Um, but he dabbles, so he will play like five times a year, um, and he looks like he's played five times a year as well. <laughs> and he's this massive amount of confidence in his job that he does, which is for telephone numbers in terms of money that he deals in. But then on a golf course, three people would be watching him and he'll pick his ball up and put it in his pocket because he's too <laughs> nervous to hit in front of him. And it's just funny, isn't it? If you, if you haven't got the time to give to this and you don't see improvement and it doesn't always come quickly, people can get really frustrated and sometimes just knock it on the head. Mm. So no, it's, no, a, it's a tough one. I think, I know my dad always says it, if Nessie's going to be the best at something, he mm. doesn't want to do it at all. And that's the same with him for golf, because he can commit the time. So um, what is your earliest golfing memory? Um, my earliest golfing memory would be, uh, actually I won, I won an under-14s competition in Scotland as a six-year-old. Yeah, as a six-year-old, I was at North Berwick, and it was on the, the which on this little course, it's still there apparently, I'm desperate to take Di there with the kids, but she keeps putting it off because she's so in love with St Andrews. Um, and it's got this beautiful little par three course. Like it's a children's course, really, outside the back of the hotel, which is attached to a very famous course in North Berwick. Um, but I won. But they didn't give me the trophy, so we went to the prize giving. And of course, there's all the age groups all the way through, and I was right, the young, the youngest, obviously. And then the the mate, all the older lads, so the under fifteen level, whatever, or under four, under fourteens, it was. And under fourteen was the top level. The score was called out for the lad who won. And it was worse than my score. But they obviously just hadn't looked down through it because there was no way a six-year-old's going to be in the running, right, to win. So it was in the paper. And my dad still got the clip in at home. Aww. And they made me a trophy. Uh, it was called the Affleck Cup. I got it, um, well, whatever, in 1988. 
I won that. So um, that was my early... And I, I say I remember that because I remember the golf course. I don't remember winning the competition particularly, but I remember the golf course and I've got all the pictures of it. But all my golfing memories at the start were from pretty much from Scotland. My whole family played. My dad got into it because he was in the motor trade. And, um, you know, we've got a very humble background uh, from Liverpool uh, and Wales from my mum. But the my dad when he started doing well for himself in the motor trade, he realized that all loads of business was getting done through golf and he was missing out. So I better learn how to play this game. And, um, you know, he might have found uh, a golf club somewhere and, um, and, and he got into it and, and his love for it grew from there and he played his, he's played his whole life and, and hence we all have since as well. And so what, you just followed in his footsteps but you obviously had a natural ability as well. Bootle Municipal was the golf course I learned at which is, um, I can't be where are you saying this because I think I wear it like a badge of honour that this but um, it's, it's um, you used to have to hook the strap of your golf bag around your leg when you were hitting a shot <laughs> <laughs> because it might get nicked like people the, the, if you weren't from the area and you weren't used to it, i mean it's probably changed a lot now but um when we were when when i was a little boy and dad would take me there and he'd play and i'd just follow around with a club um people you could tell people who weren't from the area who hadn't played there because they go and leave their clubs on the next tee and then walk to the green to pot and there's no way they were getting back there in time before someone would come out of the bushes clubs off in the car down the back road, yeah. like yeah, 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 it was great. Um, but the it was brilliant, and I used to love it. And I always remember hot oxtail soups as a kid there on a Saturday and Sunday with my dad. You'd turn up at six thirty in the summertime on a, on a Saturday morning; it'd be packed. They all be queuing because they love the golf and um, cheap and cheerful. And that's where I learnt the game on Bill Municipal, and it was great. And it's we lived there. I was born on Bailey Drive, which is right by the golf course there. Uh, and you know the only reason we left Liverpool was for me because when um, I was 11 years old and going to go to secondary school uh, I was I don't know if I don't remotely remember this dad made it his vision that I, that's what I was going to be I was going to be a golfer I mean at 11 you don't know that do you I was thinking about transforms well, he, he decided he at that point that um, you were already going to be I think he thought I was good. Yeah. I was clear because I beat everyone. So when I was when I was eleven years old, I was already playing off about eight handicap, which is unheard oh, yeah. of. Yeah, and because I mean, eleven years old, you're a kid, aren't you? I mean, you're a little little kid. But it would be funny because you go and play with people who play golf for a long time, and I'd beat them, right? And um, the only thing I was missing was age, maturity, size, and distance. So I couldn't reach. Obviously, that's where the handicap was. Actually, my short game was really really good. So. Um, we moved to Chorley so that I could live. Um, uh, we lived in the gate of Shorehill Golf Club so that I could go come home from school and go straight out onto the golf course to to practice every day without needing anyone to drive me anywhere. So that's why we moved from Liverpool in the first place, which was a massive, it, it, quite a lot of pressure actually. But I don't think at the time I really thought about it like that. But I mean, they effectively moved everything they'd ever known to surely to live in a golf club for me so I could play every day and my life as a kid and this is why um it's funny because I hear Di will talk about school and our oh, schoolmates and I haven't got that many old school friends I have one really close one a couple that I stay in touch with but one really close one. other than that I don't stay in touch with any of them because my memory of school was I get up in the morning go to the bus stop bus to school come back from school change into my golf clothes out onto the golf course with dad until it went dark whenever that was or if it was in the winter to the driving range for two or three hours every night after school come back do my homework eat my dinner go to bed rinse and repeat then on a Saturday and Sunday I'd go and play competitions and uh, I was actually a member at Formby Golf Club I we actually I actually got in there um, after we moved left from the area ironically 
But uh, that was my memory. So those days for me weren't all that amazing. I mean, the whole sort of... I, I had such a sheltered life uh, through my school years. Um, but it's arguably what had to happen. I didn't know any different. And uh, Dad was really, really hard on me. We had a... Um, it was a more of a business relationship than a father-son relationship. And uh, a lot of it, w- it was ruled through fear. I was, and, and Dad was super hard on me. I admire it and also to a degree resent it you know because his vision he he wouldn't have he wouldn't have liked that and he's we've chatted about this since at different times but he he didn't he get, he get no kicks out of saying no and that I couldn't have those things that other kids have because he thought all along you will I will give you the thing that these kids will never get you know I'll give you the opportunity to have a lifestyle and have something that these other children won't get because if you do what ordinary what is the norm you will get the norm and what you're trying to do is extraordinary um and of course when you're 13 years old I mean, I'm like, yeah sure i mean i'm perving on rachel and friends aren't i, I mean that's what i'm really thinking about that age i mean that's what the happiness is and um i just remember it was just it was a slog it was a real slog i didn't really love the game um until i started making national teams and and I think that's really, really that I knew I had something a bit special when I started playing for my county and I was playing for the men's team when I was 14 years old, and which is unusual, and playing for the England team when I'm 16 years old, which again is unusual for men's teams. Incredibly. So were you, were you playing out his... It, sound, it sounds like he had a very clear goal for you and he was almost living vicariously. Would that be fair? Um, I don't think it is probably fair to him that, no... Um, which is unusual because it's common that obviously for parents Mm. to live through the children but um, it really wasn't I think because he'd fought so hard and dad's way of making it in his life he'd come from he was a mechanic um, and he somehow managed to get his way into the sales room as a a, you know he's a scouter like proper like a scally and you know he he, was a grafter but he was um, he he, he didn't have anything you know his dad was a docker my nan who's still alive was an ice cream sales saleswoman and um or she worked in an ice cream shop in actually in um southfields ironically years ago that's where my dad's from from down here and um the 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 background was very very humble and he got everything he had by fighting for every inch uh and having to do whatever he had to so he wanted you to do the same he wanted to make it was tough because he knew that's one of the things he had to fight for so the only way he knew how was to be really hard and to push and fight for everything and make it um make things happen and golf's a bit different to that it doesn't necessarily and as i found later on in my career it doesn't always work that way but um i think for him it was all he knew so if it didn't work he'd tear into me and give me a hard time and you know i was bloody nervous being around him sometimes you know I'd be physically quite intimidating um very sad you know it'd give me a real hard time it was it was really tough and as I said I am part I I admire the fact that he was how that would have made him feel to do that but it was motives for doing it but at the same time I could never do it with my children Mm -hmm. um you know and I think if he well he knows this guy wrote this to him in a letter but which I won't really talk about but the um we we had to come together at some stage because there's too much water under the bridge with my dad and I and the, he achieved his goal right I mean I got on tour at 19 years of age I was living the life that uh, kids could only dream of 19 year olds don't live the way I was living and um but it made for a very difficult time and, and mum was the bit was the peacekeeper you know the one who sort of tried to keep it all together and mm. um, make sure that you know the arguments were 
fixed and you know tell him sometimes okay I think you've been a little bit too much on him there and it was uh yeah it made for an interesting childhood yeah I was going to ask what she was saying while all this was going on because it can't have been easy for her you know married to your dad and and respectful of his views um but obviously wanting to nurture you and give you the fullest childhood you could have yeah I think um I think to a degree she knew what dad was doing and dad is one of those people he still is that man um it's amazing actually he is that man and when he's gone touch wood is a long time away wherever wood is something's made of wood here um I'll feel a lot more vulnerable he is the guy if he said it's going to be all right it's going to be all right you know and he's the only man I've ever met that made me feel that I wouldn't trust and because I'm a bit of a control freak if someone says it's going to be alright I need to know it's alright myself mm. I need to sort it myself and I think I get that from my dad and um, if he said it was going to be okay it was going to be okay mm. and I, I trust him that much and I think mum just thought he knows what he's doing he knows so, what he's so doing. Is, is golf the sort of sport that you can just apply that the outliers theory of 10,000 hours and get that good or did he see something very special in you as early as 5 or 6 I don't know. I, I find it was such a weird... It, it's an interesting debate, the uh, 10,000 hours one. I think it's necessary, but I think it also helps to have a mm. combination of that with some innate talent and passion for a sport. I think if it comes from within, mm. great um, sports people, the ones that you've spent time around loads as well, as I have, they have that in common. There's something different about the way that they work. And, um, and ironically, when they're, sometimes when they retire, they talk about it more openly, um, because they they sort of show that little bit that was different because they had that sort of it's a, they operate in a different way especially when it's under pressure and I was always very good in that regard I got the very most out of myself when um when I needed it the most until I lost all of that when later on in my career but um I think with my dad he sort of taught me and had me believe that I was always going to be all right. And mm-hmm. as much as he was so hard on me, I also felt like I was never, ever playing anyone that I wasn't going to beat. I really believed that whoever I played, I would beat. And all my wins on tour, ironically, were against players who I was supposed to lose to. So it was always big names. Uh, when I was the main name, I never did that well because um, I always felt uncomfortable. I, my expectations mm. got my own way whereas when I had someone to strive for and it's that sort of he's got something I want mm. I was really good in that situation mm. I really lucky loved, underdog I love being in the underdog mm. I was always very good in that situation and um, I think a lot of that came from dad and the way he taught me and it, inevitably he got me to I, I put the hard yards in I had a, a certain amount of talent as well that went with it um, but something that always bothered him it bothers me a little bit as well is um when people talk about oh he's just he's just so gifted it's such a um frustrating naive uh, and ignorant mentality for people to to have towards sports people they probably put more into that than you could ever imagine um not you personally i mean in general people who aren't around those sorts of people all the time you are but you only see on TV when you watch sports people, you see those images, you think, oh, I'd love a bit of that. Would you, though? Would you really want to do what he or she did to get there? Would you be able to do that when you had a choice to do something else? The easy choice is never the right choice, usually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in those situations. And um, I recognise that now when I watch the guys and I still do it. I sometimes, because I'm there at the events, I think, oh, God, I should maybe I shouldn't have stopped but I think hang on a minute that's not doing justice to just how good they are mm. and just how hard it was when I didn't have what I used to have to be able to compete at that level anymore 
It's um, they are the very best, of the best for a reason. The reason they're on the TV screens every week, and the reason they make the money that they make, the very top athletes, is because it's really, really hard to get there. Mm. And ninety nine point nine percent of people don't. And in our sport, ninety nine percent of people end up in the pro shop. Or um, I my best one of my best mates, Bill. It, it, it is. I used to joke with him. I used to say he's a Mars bar salesman. He's not, <laughs> but that was the old joke, you know, with people who you'd have a give him a bit of needle over the fact that you know you didn't make it as a player, so you end up selling Mars bars. Of course, they don't. There's much more to it. They're business people. They teach. They do all sorts of wonderful things and grow the game. But um, usually, n- nearly all of those people had aspirations of being mm. tour players because mm. they didn't wake up and think, God, I really want to be the head pro at this golf club. They they woke up thinking I want to beat him, I want to hold a putt to win the Open, or I want to you know win on this tour, or be that guy, or live in this house, and to live in this house I'll need to be able to play at this level, and whatever it was, the motivation it was usually to play at the highest level, and very few make it. What did your brother make of all of this? Because Marcus is older than you, but did he feel like you were the sort of chosen younger son? Mm. Dad tried to get him to be a golfer as well, but he's and, terrible. Uh, He's terrible at golf. He really is terrible at golf, but he's bloody good at business and um, very academic. I was academic as well, but Marcus followed it through, went to university in London, and the rest is history. Um, I left when I was 16, though, so I did really well in my GCSEs. And, uh, but, and then I was going to actually go to university when I was 17 in America. I scored really highly on the SATs. I could have gone pretty much anywhere, full scholarship. Um, but my mum had said, because she's very academic, She'd said, if you go, you have to finish your your degree. I was going to do a degree in psychology because it was relevant, mm. purely because it was relevant to what I did. Um, to be honest, I, know, I, I did well in school, but I didn't, as I said, I didn't like school. I didn't, it was not a happy time for me particularly. So, But going to America and playing golf, and it was like, this seems great. And back then, it was sort of the go-to thing to do, go in the college system, you know, warm weather training, really high-quality competition to be against. And mum said I'd had to stay and finish it. I had no intention of doing that. I was going to turn pro well before then. So I knocked it on the head. And at 16, I was a full-time golfer playing all the amateur events. And um, the, the funny thing now when I look at that, it, it, I didn't bat an eyelid. But what if it hadn't worked out? Yeah, yeah. And no qualifications. Saying, oh, I did, really, pro at I did really well. Really, I would have been selling Mars bars, wouldn't I? But the, um, no, but I, it really does an injustice to what they do. No. Um, <laughs> if you're a club pro, you, I, I admire you greatly. But um, the yeah yeah tip that one around the post no but the um, if it hadn't worked out I had no qualifications you know I I I don't know what I'd have done because I wouldn't have wanted to do that because I'm I'm really creative person and being in the golf club would have been uh, or or teaching people for a living I enjoy doing what I do now with the bits and bobs I do through social media but I'm not a golf coach I'm not born to do that. No, I don't know. I, well, look, more on that later, because I actually think you are a very good teacher. And I think that's part of why you're very good on screen. You're a pundit and you explain the game in layman's terms. You, you kind of make it accessible, which is a key to being a good teacher, surely. But anyway, um, everything changed when your mum died. Mm. Tell us what happened. Yeah, well, uh, I was at the peak of my powers, really. Uh, or certainly I was moving in the right direction. I was one of the top 50 in the world and um, playing my first Masters. And my mum and dad were there. And it was the weirdest week ever. And um, because mum and dad didn't come and watch me play because dad couldn't watch me play because of the whole sort of, he couldn't help, even as a, an adult. 
I'd be looking at, I couldn't help myself, I'd watch him down the side of the fairway and he'd be like, oh, he's doing this. He'd be doing all sorts of funny moves like because he's annoyed that I did a bad, or make a bogey or whatever. So he never came. But I said, well, come. Did you ask him not to come? Or I didn't want him he, to come and he didn't like right. it. He didn't like it. He did, and again, like, that's he's the whole stressful. point. He didn't, he didn't mean any of this. He's just, he meant so much to him. That was the thing. Uh, and of course, he had to, the members of the golf club used to drive him wild. Or he could say, oh, see, your lad missed the cut. He says, oh, I just have to, people need to go and get in the car and drive home because he couldn't handle it. Um, and of course, as you know, and we all know in this world, there's plenty of that where you have to be able to sort of in one and out the other with with sometimes fans or public or people who want to let you know their opinions. But um, the funny thing was at the Masters, he came and they watched me. And on the second day, I was um, doing quite well. And uh, in a main corner at Augusta um, is a very obviously well-known uh, area of Augusta National, one of the fam- most famous parts of a golf course you'll ever hear about. And I hit a ball. I made a mistake and I dropped two shots with cutting the story short. I dropped a couple of shots and I was in trouble now. And then I birdied four of the last six holes. I should I could have birdied all six of them. But it was pretty impressive. And I ended up tied 13th going into the third round in my first Masters, which is impressive because most people miss the cut in the first Masters because it takes a few years to learn that course. And my dad um, came in and... When I walked in, he he wasn't the sort to be like, oh mate, and cuddles and all that. Oh, I am so proud. He, he he is now like that. He wasn't then, and he couldn't speak. And he just said that that was that was the best. That was the best. And I was like, what? When I walked in, I was like, what? What? He was the best. That best. He couldn't get it out. That's all he could do. I was like, this is peculiar. And my mum was so happy. I remember seeing how happy she was. Like it all. All been worthwhile. So anyone anyway, on the Sunday when it all finished, I gave my mum a hug at the back of 18 at Augusta. I went on to Harbour Town for the next week's tournament, uh, which I was going into the Saturday. After three rounds, I was in contention to win for the first time on the PGA Tour. And um, I come off and I had 15 missed calls from my brother. And I find out mum's had a heart attack. They'd gone back to Orlando at this stage. Um, you need to come down. So pulled out the tournament, drove down there. In the end, her heart was fine, but... Um, She'd. We didn't know how long been since my dad had found her and started with CPR. And um, the question was how badly her brain might have been damaged if it was damaged at all. Um, but the opt- the CT scans were really positive, or the ECG scans, I think they call them, don't they? ECG scans. Uh, they showed activity, which was great. So, oh, she's going to wake up, fantastic. Everything's going to be great. And I was lucky enough that Nick Faldo, being a friend of mine, knew the best doctors, and I had airlifted to the right hospitals. It's one of the perks of, you know, being in that privileged position, be able to help someone like that. And you hope it's going to make the difference. Uh, anyway, two days pass, and as anyone who knows who's been through anything like this, the time is is a massively important thing. The longer that goes, it, the curve is quite steep at the end. So. Uh, the next scan showed there was limited activity, and then the last scan after on the sixth day we had another scan, um, and it showed that she had no activity. And it was like a film. I remember the doctor coming in, and he the, the bit that was most disconcerting about all was that the doctor cried when he, he he was crying when he told us, which is really weird when a doctor cries because doctors yeah. aren't supposed to cry. You know, they're supposed to be the ones who deliver it too clinically and unemotionally, aren't they? And actually. Uh, he was really emo- he just said she's not coming back she's not gonna wake up and, and my dad blessed him was so business like about it and so, so so what do we do now then what do we do and he said you don't do anything now he said we can keep her alive and and he was looking for the doctor to tell him like do we keep her alive or not mm. um and doctors don't tell you that and he did he said she's not coming back she's not gonna if she does she won't know you who you are she won't speak eat move 
And uh, thankfully, they talked about it, uh, you know, as everyone does, because we've all seen those films, right? And like, what would you want? And well, turn me off if I'm going to be like that. And so that's what we did. And she died within a minute. And um, and then I literally fell off a cliff after that, really. And unfortunately, I was looking like I was going to make the Ryder Cup team that year. And in hindsight, it was the biggest mistake I made was making it very public. I did a press conference, buried mum on a Tuesday, flew her home, buried her on a Tuesday. Instead of playing at Sawgrass in the Players' Championship, I played the Italian Open because I should have won it the year before. A couple of times I should have won it. And Mummo's really wanted me to win the Italian Open for some reason, even though it's just a regular tournament on the European Tour. So I went there for her. It was all emotional already. But it seemed right at the time and I was thriving off it because it felt it made me feel closer to her. And um, I did a press conference about my mum passing away, which was the weirdest thing. Uh, and it was all very public. And all the way through, and it came down to the last six holes and the, the, the last nine of the last event to make the team for the Ryder Cup. So it lasted the whole year and I just missed it. Oh and Nick called me into the office. Faldo was the captain. And he said, look, I'm not picking you. Um, but you know I want you to come with us as, as part of the team and be there and I said no because I think I was just emotionally spent and then after that I really did sort of I think something kept me going because there was a part of me I was still like the Italian Open I just buried my mum I came top 10 because I was playing so well but then I was just or just on adrenaline yeah, I, or what I, just because I was I was playing great golf mm. but this isn't hadn't really hit home what was going on yeah. and so I, I'd be like in the first first time in floods of tears teeing off in it and then I'd just break down halfway around and start crying and then I'd make a birdie and then it just it was the weirdest vibe it's not healthy what I was doing and I made it my goal to make the Ryder Cup team for my mum which was the massive mistake because it became something that was beyond my control mm. and um, so many people wanted it for me as well and it, I did so much damage that was that I probably paid the price for a lot after that mm. and um, the next year I won again and the, the, where I lost my game wasn't until that next year when I won and it was the, the end of my game was the, last, was the day I won my last tournament because I had it in my head I was going to have this moment and ironically Martin Keimer the year before on the same green in the same tournament his mum had just passed away and he pointed up to the sky and uh, I remember watching it my mum was still alive at that time um, oh sorry no, it wasn't. It was the same time. It was right around the same time. I remember watching it. It wasn't long after mum had passed away. And I remember Martin pointing up to his mum and to the sky on this green. And I was emotional about it because of, obviously, the, what was going on. And um, also, any person... He's a young man. He was a young man. He's younger than me, Martin. To lose your mum at that age, it's too young. He would have been probably 23. Mm. Terrible. What were you, 25? 26. 26. So um, it was really emotional. I thought, I, I, And when I... I thought I will have that moment and ironically it was the same tournament the same green same golf course um, and I halt the putt to win and it was to beat Bernard Langer and Retief Goosen and um, and I did the whole pointing up thing and it was the most hollow thing because it was just like it was going through the motions I didn't feel anything because in the end mum's still dead and actually she just wanted me to be happy and this wasn't making me happy uh, and I put myself through so much for this moment it was so hollow it was just so hollow. It did me anything. We went out for drinks after. I thought, you know what? I played over 300 tournaments on the European Tour, and I won three times. And winning three times put you in an in a elevated tier of player because most people, to win once, okay, quite a few people win once. Still less than half. But then it drops off massively once you get to people who win twice to three times and then so on. See, it's not easy winning with 156 other competitors every week. Um, and I thought, wow, this meant very little to me and actually it was quite a sad day and it really wasn't that easy to achieve and I thought this is this is going to be a problem and I remember being with the guys that night and I, I just 
I never had, a, let alone have a chance to win. I never, won, I never came in the top ten in a tournament again after that. How quickly did you realise that, that this was a hollow? Like the reflections that you had and that you're talking about now, how long did that take to kind of sink in and dawn on you? Was it straight away? Straight away. Well, then, at that yes, night, I remember, yeah. Because I, even with my dad, I remember speaking to my dad and... I don't know, I just, it was stupid. I don't know, I made no sense, but emotionally it must have done. Like, uh, I'm going to make it all right. I'll make it all right, I'll win this for us. Mm-hmm. It's like, great, great win, mate. But, know you know, what? yeah, like, you know, still, you're not going to see your mum. You know, and uh, and that, that is, I still find it really hard today, the idea that I can't speak to my mum. The, the terminal thing about someone passing away is the most uh, hardest thing I've ever had to get my head around. But I think for me, the other big thing it led to was that really bad things could happen to me. And that whole mindset my dad had instilled in me as a kid uh, of I was bulletproof. I really did believe I was bulletproof. Anything. If something bad happened, I would palm it off as in, well, I mean, something better is going to happen. And inevitably, I always did because that mindset self-fulfilling, right? Mm. Uh, and all of a sudden, there was nothing good that happens off the back of that. There is no better outcome, is there? It's not like there's going to be, oh, your mum's going to come back and she'll be 10 years younger and healthier as well. Yeah. No, that's it. It's done. Yeah. Uh, and so I realised that bad things could happen. And I think then it started me on more of a negative spiral. And um, all of a sudden, and golf played in a negative way with a, with a bad mindset is a bad place because it's hard. It's a really hard game. Is, is that why Faldo didn't pick you? Did, did he see a vulnerability in you that, or did cause, it's hard he could have team anyway? But could he picked you as his wild card though? He could have done, and that's what he brought me in his office to tell me he wasn't going to pick me as his wild card. And but why not? Why do you think that? Because was? there were other good players. I think he went with Poulter, and um, I can't remember who else he picked. He overlooked Casey as well, I think, for that one. Um, but did you? Feel, I had a did you feel a bit gutted I, about that? Because given that no, he was like your mentor, no, because it would have been risky to pick me, and also I'd have been a rookie, and to pick a rookie is a big deal. And I think there was a few rookies in that team anyway. And I still had a chance. I very nearly made it by my own right in that last event, mm. still with all of it. Um, and it would have been risky. It would have been a lovely thing to do. And obviously, with our relationship, it makes it harder when you have those things mm. because it would have looked like he was picking his someone were picking the the, the kid he's it's looked after. Boy. Yeah. Um, but he, he made the right. Well, it wasn't the right pick because we got battered. But the um, <laughs> but the it, 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 the decision didn't bother me at all. It was a different thing altogether. You can't get sentimental about those things. You got to do the right thing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, "What the." F- are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So. And then, uh, you know, really, it's, it's fair to say your golf never really recovered, never got back to those glory Terrible days. Pinks. Sorry. <laughs> it was, it's beyond that. But, That's what's wonderful about the job I do now is that I know what it's like because I played with, the highlight of my career was playing with Tiger and going toe-to-toe with him at the US Open and uh, and feeling comfortable and it was just the best day of my career because you're playing with something winning tournaments is one thing but being around someone that you know is he's Muhammad Ali he's Michael Jordan he arguably more so potentially by the end of it all if he this comeback keeps coming um, it's the gift that keeps keeps on giving Tiger Woods but um the most amazing things I've done in my career and I've experienced at the top level and I've been really good at this game uh, and not been fearful of anyone and I've also been fearful of myself um, and terrified of taking the club back and being absolutely bloody awful and uh, the worst of it being running out of golf balls in South Africa when I'd lost my card and I'd been on the I was one under after six holes in this tournament a really hard golf course at Fancourt and on the 16th tee I was 15 over and I'd had two scores in double digits, and I had my last ball, and the caddy gave me my last. He said, "That's your last ball, mate." <laughs> and I remember being stood over, oh. and I thought, I'd already, I'd already lost one off that tee, so it's going to get worse than fifteen over. Oh. And I thought, I can't shoot in the nineties; it's mortifying. I thought, if I lose this ball, I'll be disqualified, but that's better than having to shoot ninety something and everyone seeing it. And I thought, wow, that's. You're in a really good place if you think it like this. And of course, it spooned it off to the right hand side, lost the ball, and the referee came. The referee didn't know what to say to me. He said, um, I don't. He said, you, You're dis- disqualified. I went, That's fine with me, mate. I said, Which way? <laughs> Which way to the clubhouse? Oh. And um, that was the, the, the bottom of the barrel because the funny thing is, when it went wrong, the bottom of the barrel, I, I kept thinking I'd hit the bottom of the barrel and it was no one. Actually, I would have been devastated to know I was only halfway down at certain times. Um, and it came to the yips with the drive. I got so scared of the game and of failing, and because I was failing so often, I was self. It was justifying why I was feeling like this, and it was snowballing out of control. And it got so bad that I just, I, I didn't want to play. I didn't know how to take the club back, and I was so scared. And I would just quit on my swing on the way down because I was so scared, and it would just go miles offline, losable. And it was the most horrific. It, when people would watch it, and you'd be like, "Oh my god." You know, it was like that. It take your breath away how bad it was, um, I, and it was. And I knew I was in trouble because it was in here. It was in my head. Yeah. Um, yes, it was manifesting itself in a technical way. But I, and the other thing, I just changed all these coaches, and that's what I did when I when Mum died. I changed everything because I didn't want to deal with what was really happening. I started sacking people left, right, and centre. Right, that's not working. Like Damien Taylor, um, Brendan Taylor was, was my manager all the time. We had a great little team, and I started just getting rid of people. Sorry, mate, that doesn't work anymore. But was that the control freak in you just trying to trying re- to find, I wanted to have something control. tangible that I yeah. could touch and feel, yeah. that I could be like, no, that, that doesn't work. This will work instead. Rather than going, look, no, you just, whoa. You know, you, you, Did you ever any stage ask yourself, say to yourself, look, clearly this is coming back to the massive trauma, the horrendous shock of losing your mum so young? I just don't think I was ready. I, don't, I, I just don't know what I would have done with it, though. I didn't like how it makes me feel I'm you know I'm from that sort of family where you just sort of right come on let's go let's get up and go again and I did and then one thing Di would tell you actually throughout all of it I'd be in tears loads of times 
but um but I never woke up one day without feeling it would be I'd bounce out of bed every morning even in the bottom of the barrel I was just like right today's the day and I'm very proud of that because that's not an easy that's go that's part of my character which would help me get where I was um but I didn't have the answers I didn't have the answers, and um, surely you do, and you did, and you do have the answers. It well, I do did now. all come. But okay, so when was that moment? When did that dawn on you? When did the penny drop? When it wasn't what I did for a living anymore. It took you to completely quit the game yeah. to realise that this had all come down to losing but it your didn't mum. Matter. Yeah, well, I know, I know, I knew, I knew what it came down. to. I knew where the where the point was. I knew where the um, where it stemmed back to, but I didn't have to. I didn't have to fix that, and I saw a lot of people about trying to fix it mm. as well. Um, and uh, I just think you know, the biggest change for me was when I realised I was more than just a golfer because unfortunately um, I was always very addicted to the how my ego felt when and it was huge as an individual in an individual sport to, to win and have that because you people treat you different it's a bit weird actually mm-hmm. and ironically as I've got older it's something I'm more uncomfortable with because they're not real interactions but I used to love it when I was nineteen, twenty, traveling around the world, and you know, it's just—I mean, you're living like a king. I mean, you're you're a rock star, yeah. and um, it was the best thing ever. And it was so addictive. I mean, who doesn't want to feel like that? Yeah. But if you live like that, then when it goes wrong and people stop calling, and actually people, you're the guy. You're, oh, there's the lad who just—you know—he can't make a cut, and you know, when you start to become that guy, and people talk to you in that sort of, are you all right? Like you've got an illness. Yeah. You have to also embrace that because you, that's where you live. You, it's all about your ego. So and my, my foundation of what I was about wasn't built on anything that was... It was putrid underneath, unfortunately. And uh, it took a, a long time for me to actually make peace with, you know what, I'm all right. I can live with both. I can live with this. And I made peace with the fact that, look, I had a good run. I did great things. Um, I can't do it anymore. Uh, and then I found something else that I enjoyed and... You know, Di was uh, instrumental, really, in that because she kept asking me, saying Jason Wesley from from Golf at Sky, kept asking, would I like to go on and be do a guest? And, I, and I'd always said no. Again, the ego saying no because once I do that, that's mm-hmm. like saying I'm one foot out the door. Yeah. And I'm a pro golfer. I'm not a pundit. Yeah. You know, I don't talk about golf. I am a golfer. This is what I do. Um, and it was stupid, really, because loads of guys who'd done it before me and done well, David Hal being one of them, Ollie Wilson, another one who'd done it. Uh, and I realised from the moment I did the very first ever show, it felt good for someone to actually go, oh, well done, mate, thought you were great on there. It'd been a long time. It'd been five years since anyone had ever said anything to me about how well I'd done something because yeah. it had constantly been negative stuff. So um, I think I really enjoyed it. And then when it came down, the opportunity of moving into it, the bit that I enjoy the most is not being a pundit presenting I really enjoy because it excites me because it's a completely different job to what I used to do mm. yes my back golfing background is a massive asset and it's you know I can lean on it any given time and my relationships within the game and the fact that I have credibility from I used to do what you do now the person I'm looking at across from me and talking to but the skill set is something brand new and I really like that it's like yeah. a brand new journey going a different direction and it made it really easy actually well, yeah, I mean, you're redefining yourself, which, mm. as you say, is quite exciting. You probably needed that that yeah. buzz that you hadn't had from golf for so long. You were getting elsewhere. And you probably didn't know you could get it elsewhere. No, I didn't. And, and that was a bit that was quite scary when I was struggling because I thought, this is all I have. And at the same time, with young kids, I thought, I'm not going to spend all of this money that I've earned on me trying to... Because it cost a bloody fortune. Like, I was spending hundreds of thousands. 
because I'll be spending more on coaching than ever. But I'm not making any, I mean, I'm literally not making any money. And this is where I have a huge amount of admiration for, um, I was very lucky when I got on tour. I turned pro, I went straight to Q school, I got on tour and I was on the main stage like that, done. And then when I lost my card, I had to go back to the Q school and I was in a very different man then in a very different part of their life and it was very hard and all I could notice was oh my god they're really good these kids who can't make it and they haven't got anything and some of them to work other jobs as well like they're better than me like they they do exactly what I and in my head I thought well they're not going to be as good as me are they and they are and they still are and you know that's the thing that made me realize how good some of these guys are that don't ever get the opportunity to have done what what I did and the difference is very different and most of it's between the ears and Mm. Um, obviously it was one of the negative things for me at the end but it was also one of my biggest attributes when I was at my very best so um, I think to move away from it was was the right time for me though well yeah I mean what a roller coaster though to get to that point I mean it must have been emotionally financially physically exhausting on every level it really was um, but but it made it easier because I really enjoyed what I was doing with Sky Uh, I'd spoken to the bosses there and I knew the vision for the future so there was a plan. I like a plan, mm. um, and it was an exit strategy. Yeah, I was, control. and I like control, yeah. and uh, I didn't have any of it, and um, I just felt like the right thing. And ironically, from the moment I made that commitment, golf became easy again. And like now, I'll go and play. I played two days ago with with some friends, and I had um, for people who play golf, I had thirteen chances on the west course at Wentworth. Thirteen chances inside ten foot for birdie, which I wouldn't have done when I was playing at my very best. So as much as okay, sometimes I'll hit terrible shots because I don't practice anymore and I play like ten times a year. Actually, when you take away the, the, the um, disease that I had in the end between my ears that I'd helped grow and fed through that time through the decisions I made, uh, I could still play the game really well. And I enjoy it, but I still have no want. So I never ever go to a tournament and have a sky and think, oh, yeah. I want to you get don't. You never, never feel that anyway. Like okay, Which I'm makes ask me you feel that. that I just, it's definitely the right thing, right? Yeah. Okay, the Masters was a bit different when I was there because <laughs> it's just like, I mean, that's a bit special. And, and it did bring back all those moments. The last time I was there was the last time I saw my mum. So that was a weird, weird feel. But also being there, it, it's a bit special. But yeah, I'm on a different, different track now and I get so much more enjoyment doing what I do with Sky. Um, and being able to tell the story rather than be part of it. When you see what Tiger's done, the comeback of all comebacks, is there any part of you that thinks, well, he, he's proved that it can be done, so I could do the same? You can't use people like Tiger Woods for that inspiration. <laughs> um, yes, I, I absolutely see the point you're making. Um, I can't, you can't do that. So <laughs> you just can't do it. But, so the, my reason is, uh, I'm a massive Tiger fan and I don't mind doing it. And people criticise all the time. Oh, you guys love Tiger. Yes, I do love Tiger because I know him. I've played with him and I've played my whole career watching him before I was there. And after I've been there, he is still there doing what he was doing. Um, what he did when he was at his very best was remarkable. To have gone through what he's gone through. And me also know what that feels like. Mm. But he had personal troubles. He also had huge physical troubles, which at one stage meant he couldn't walk. Mm. And swing a golf club, couldn't walk. Lost a parent. Lost a parent. Um, and then his golf game, uh, which included chipping yips. Yeah. Um, couldn't keep it on the golf course with his driver. It's quite a lot, that. And, mm. and the thing that makes it even harder for Tiger is, some people say, oh, that was his advantage, though he knows he's got it. You don't, though, because when he was really good... He was untouchable and everyone felt like, including myself, the reason he won so many taunts because we all thought he was superhuman. Once he hits mm. the front, that's it. It's game over. Mm. Can't get past him once he's at the front. Um, 
and you expected him to do superhuman things and I'm a big believer in that um, self-fulfilling prophecy mm. and and yeah. he I think achieved so much because the vibe around him and in his head was I make these putts when no one else makes them and you think oh this would be incredible he chipped like the chip in at 16 at Augusta in 2005 and there's hundreds of those moments over Tiger you not go oh it was that shot no there's so many of those shots in his career but to then fall off the face of the earth and it be over mm-hmm. and to a degree disgraced in some people's minds um, on and off the golf course. Oh, what a shame. The fallen hero. Um, and everyone's saying it's over, including me. And I'm one of his biggest fans. He was all over. And I'm thinking, my actual take was, I hope he retires and doesn't become the guy that everyone gets to beat. Because when my played... When I played, it really meant something. I beat him once in one tournament in the entire time. All of those times I played with Tiger in tournaments he played, I beat him one time. And it was at the Open in 2009. Uh, and he missed the cut and I didn't. But, they, um, but only one time. I beat him over rounds of golf loads of times. But only once in a whole tournament. And if you beat him, it really meant something. And if you beat him, it usually meant you won the tournament. Because if he didn't win, he came second or third. He was that good. So everyone now was taking his scalp. And that used to really pain me. I was like, he's too good for that. Yeah. And I need to remember him. I want to remember him as the legend and the hero that he, that he, that he was. Um, I don't want to see him like fall over at the end and someone have to pick him up and carry him across the line. So that's no interest to me because he's too... I like him as I remember him. Yeah, but that's the hardest thing, isn't it, for a sportsman or woman to know when the right time is to retire. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's near on impossible and... Well, I knew you know when it's they, wrong. they effectively took my job off me and well. kicked me out the door. But they, um, but yes, I hear exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And um, he obviously wasn't ready. And he'd say all these things like, you know, I'm just one day at a time. And, oh, God, it's painful. I can't listen to it anymore. And then last year he wins the Tour Championship. And it's like he's like the Pied Piper coming down the 18th hole. The fans, it was the most surreal thing to watch on TV. And the effect of him is golf as well. People didn't used to watch golf. No. You know, with all due respect to Jack Nicholas and Nick Faldo, you know, from a British standpoint, obviously Nick and Jack are very different things, but it didn't pull put bums on seats. Oh, Palmer did to a degree, but not, well, he did a lot. He, he revolutionised how we see sport, uh, golf as a sport, but still, the general public didn't tune in to watch golf other than the Masters, maybe the Open and the Ryder Cup. Tiger's a different ball game. He transcends the sport. He is bigger than the sport, which is a ma- and most people disagree with me saying that. But he is bigger than the sport because people who have no interest in golf have an interest in Tiger Woods. 100%. And if you have an interest in golf, you definitely also have an interest in Tiger Woods. You yeah. might not always love him, and you might want to. Yeah, I think that's him. part of it. I yeah. think that's part of the box office. Yeah. And you know, it's the same for us in Formula One with Lewis Hamilton. He's on the front and back pages. There's very few sportsmen that yeah. can achieve that, and that is what draws you in. You become part of the soap opera, and you know, there's elements of their lives that you don't don't agree with, but you know, you've got an opinion because it matters. And yeah. for some reason, everyone wants an opinion, and that's when you know you've got a true icon. Yeah, I, and I agree with that. And you're right, he does hit both sides of the paper as well. And I think um, the thing is about this one at the Masters is it was it was so it was all over, and now all of a sudden we're dreaming that he might beat Jack's record at 43 mm. years of age. He's three behind now, and uh, it's realistic. Yeah. And the next major is coming up, uh, and it's at a golf course that he's won at Bethpage Black, and then the major after that. He's also won at that golf course as well. So and again, it goes back to your idea of self-fulfilling prophecy that mm. you do in some way feed off the confidence mm. others have in you, not just that you have in yourself. Absolutely. And um, 
the weird thing is people were saying who really know about the sport as well and that's the amazing thing is that a bit about Tiger that really gets everyone is that people who know the game you know, like social media is a great place to watch what people say about mm. sports if you know about your sport now other sports I don't know about so I'd read what someone say about football and oh that sounds interesting but football someone who knows the game Gary Neville for instance would go oh god almighty you read some of the stuff I read that about golf all the time yeah. people say the most ridiculous stuff about golf but people who do know about golf said what turned out to be ridiculous things about Tiger Woods because we were all wrong all of these people who know all this stuff and all this experience and all this wisdom was wrong about Tiger Woods but this is why I'm not giving up on you yeah. <laughs> that's why I said you can't use it because there's only one Tiger Woods and I don't think there'll ever be another one either yeah, I'm sure. but, um, but I think he's, he's not done yet I think he'll, he'll probably go on to win more majors now and I mean, it's brilliant for golf. Oh, it's, 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 it's a brilliant story of humanity as well. I mean, it's, it's, as you say, the sort of story you'll be telling your grandchildren and their grandchildren. Well, that was the decades. thing for them, wasn't it? Yeah. Because I think for the bit about the Masters was there were people my age who grew up as kids watching Tiger in 1997 win the Masters, his first major, who are now sat with their kids, like mine, Max, yeah. watching him do it again now. It's like the next generation getting to feel exactly what I felt back in the 90s yeah, when yeah. Tiger first came and hit the scene so yeah, yeah he's amazing and he, uh, you know we're lucky that we've still got him it's great for our sport yeah. back to you for a moment um, when your mum went when she died how did it affect the dynamic with your father given that the peacemaker was now no longer part of the equation um, it was hard but I think it, over time it's brought us closer together because it's softened we've sort of embraced mum's mentality and how we've interacted and I think, um, ironically, since I retired, Dad and I have gotten great because I know I, we had that chat where I said, "Look, I think he always felt responsible for I'm the one who really pushed you into being a golfer, and I promised you this." So he always felt it was his duty to make sure it went well. So when it went wrong, he was trying to get involved, and I didn't want him to get involved, mm-hmm. and I wasn't in a good place. And we had some pretty good arguments, like good ones. <laughs> and um, uh, I think out the back of it, I, we spoke and. I effectively said at the end, look, it's my responsibility. I This is what I'm doing. Um, you did great. You achieved what you want. And I've had a wonderful life doing that. Mm. And um, what I do now is on the back of that. You know, everything in my life is on the back of it. Where I live, uh, my wife, my children, um, what I do for my living. Everything I do is because of the sport uh, that he introduced me to. So... Um, there's no regrets and I really don't and that was a fit but I thought I thought I'll never will I always feel because I'm not I find it really hard to not finish things off in my life and yet that one I thought oh I don't know if I'll be able to live with that because I haven't finished that off but what is finishing it off Mm. I came back three years after not being able to get the ball off the tee and finished playing four tournaments a year because I couldn't get anything else and also doing bits for Sky not really playing properly anymore and finished, uh, I was in contention at the Dunhill, uh, and I finished in the top 30, which in itself was a monumental comeback mm. from a player who couldn't get it off the tee, mm. like literally terrified to, to, to take the club back because it would go sideways off the face to be in the top 30 in the European Tour event again. In its own way, there you go, you, you beat the game, mm. you got back, and you managed to take control over the sport again. And mm. But winning, yeah, it'd be lovely, but... You know, to a degree, if someone said to me now, look, you can have it all back. You go back out there and be a pro golfer again. I, I just don't know if I want it. Because it's it's a life that is so selfish 
And I mean it with no disrespect to the guys who are good at it because, and I have a huge admiration for guys with families who make that work, but it's all about you. Mm. You're the CEO and you call the shots and you have to be ruthless all of the time um, with your time as well. And you might play 23, 25, 28, even 30 tournaments some of the guys play a year, but at least another 12 weeks of that will be proper practice time, if not more. So actually when you bear it down to, and then you've got all your corporate bits and bobs, actually your spare time to just be the family guy or go and hang out with your girlfriend or do whatever it is that you do, it's a very small amount of time. Yeah. And so they have to play the role of support staff mm-hmm. to a degree. Uh, and I'm not prepared to do that because it's just not really how I'm built with my family. So where it is now with TV, red light, and you, you know what this feels like. Um, red light goes off, I'm off. I never think about it. And that's one of the things I love about it. I used to spend my entire life thinking about how I could do it better. How will I improve that? What do I need to do? And maybe that's where I came unstuck because I overthought it all. But um, with TV, I go, right, okay, what are we doing? And I go home, I'm off. You know, I don't go back and sit there and think, oh, I should have done that. Because I realize that, God, moment to moment, live TV, this is, things go wrong. And actually what makes it fun is how you get your way out of it and like how I fixed it. I did well there and that went wrong or there was a problem back in the gallery and I had to pick up and do that. And I I really enjoyed that. And actually some of the most fun of doing the the whole thing is that, right? Mm. Rather than, you know, the really simple bits. But um, But I think that, I think therein lies your closure with, mm. and you can be at peace with your game because you have now carved out this new niche for yourself mm. in life that does give you a thrill of a slightly different kind, but one that, you know, is, I don't know, giving you a, your mojo back in a way, really. Yeah, it has. And I, I think it's, uh, the amazing thing is now is that so often, so I get guys, Tommy Fleetwood said it to me, and uh, Rosie said it as well, Justin said it when I saw him at the, um, bless him at the Masters, he came in, and so my first day of doing the Masters, and, and I'd said to him, look, it's my first time in the main seat, I could do with a bit of help, you know, it'd be yeah. nice if you lads came in, because that doesn't normally happen, and thinking, it's, just, it's like literally, it's, it's, the, it's the night before the first major of the year, but I know what the guys are doing, the work they do, they all came, it was, I was really, really, I got quite emotional about it when they all turned up as well, and they're like, yeah, I'm in. And Justin as well, because Justin's you know, he's world number one at the time. So, but he came in, blessed me, gave me this pep talk, pep talk, and um, he said to me, and he, I'm mic'd up so everyone can hear what he's saying as well. He goes, now look, this is your little pep talk. He says, all this stuff that came before doesn't matter now, right? He says, this is what you're made to do. He said, they're here because of you. This is why you're here doing this because of you, not because you used to play golf, because of what you do and how you do it, and you'll do it great. And I'm like, thanks, mate. And I'm trying to cover, it, cover it up, and it. it was so sweet. And um, I think that's one of the, one of the great things that I've really I've got closure from is that I actually think that I'm not there yet by any means, but I think by the end of it all, I'll probably be remembered as a broadcaster rather than a professional golfer. And um, funny enough, it happens sometimes now. People people sort of don't really realise what I, what I did when I played. You know, I mean, the guys out there do, in, yeah. in my world, in that really small world, but the people that I see, and especially younger people, yeah. they're like, no idea, because I wasn't even on tour when they really well, got to I, Do you know what? I'm going to compare you to Gary Lineker now, because there'll be a, a younger generation that doesn't remember ever watching him play football, but he's a brilliant broadcaster, and he has carved that niche for himself. There are... The p- pundits are, are plenty, and mm. there's some brilliant ones out there. But as you say, to make the transition 
from a player to a presenter with that bed of credibility and knowledge just as your sort of foundations if you like that's a very different thing altogether yeah it is actually and I think he's a great example for someone I I admire Gary because I think he's really great at what he does and he's really good at not letting people realize just how great he was because he was one of the very best Lineker was an amazing player uh, you know, and like the whole thing the other night with Barcelona as well. And it was like, why is he getting excited? Because he used to play for them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's how good he was. Um, but yeah, I think I, that's what's exciting about it was when I was just being the guest, it sort of reminded me of playing. It's like I'm here yeah. as Nick Doherty, the golfer. Yeah. Which, and it's great fun. It is the easiest job. It, it is a bit limited, I think. It is limited. Yeah. Well, yeah. and the other thing as well is that you have a, you have a shelf life, right? Because yeah. then there's someone yeah, there's who's younger. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's, the, there's someone who was like me yeah. going through who's yeah. younger and just come off tour and they're like, oh my God, right, I need to make room on the seat. <laughs> and the next minute you, you haven't got a seat. And <laughs> um, The only and thing the is thing. you can be more opinionated as a pundit than a presenter. To a degree. But the funny thing is with, uh, yes, absolutely, of course you can. But I think we have permission because of our background. Where The great thing is, and it's also a curse, I always know the answer to the question that I'm asking. Yeah. I don't always know what they're going to say because yeah. they won't always agree with me. Yeah. But I'll always know. And it only ever takes me off guard is if they say something that is off, off the wall. Yeah, but like, that's not right. Yeah. You see, I definitely don't have yeah. that luxury. I, I quite often ask questions where I don't know the answers. And I'm asking the question of Martin Brundle or Damon Hill because, you know, I need their experience. I, they've they've yeah. sat in a car, they've driven a car, they've won races in a way that I never have. I think that's a bit, that's an asset because um, I can come unstuck because I drive it too much because I know exactly where I want okay. That answer will lead to this, to yeah. lead to this, because I'm going to ask him that and then this. I know exactly where I want to go with it. But sometimes they won't see it the way I yeah. see it. And I have to make peace with the fact yeah. that that's not how Paul sees this. And the control freak in you has to back down. Yeah, and that's fine. Um, and Robert Lee has the same thing for us in Sky as well because Rob obviously a background and he will give an opinion and I will give an opinion as well. Yeah. But in the end, it's about their voice and what they really feel about it. But it is interesting. But I think sometimes not knowing the answer can be nice because that's what the person is at home, right? Your, your viewer yeah. is sat there not knowing the answer. No, trust me, F1 fans back home no, they know. know more. They yeah, know. they know a lot. They, I tell they you what, super like geeks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, we've got this lovely kind of uh, community. It's like a family. Everyone calls it the F1 family. But wow, I tell you what, if you get a stat wrong, you will have 20 tweets within a second telling you, actually, in 1984, blah, 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 blah. Oh, blah, my God. Know. Have a day off. Yeah, no, Have a day fun, off. Though. Yeah, well, it's. I suppose it is. I don't think social media is great fun but all good for you for saying it (laughs) (laughs) listen um the last hour has flown by um what the listeners won't know is that your darling wife di is actually looking after all four of our children Mm. right now so it's going to be carnage out there should we just stay in here and have some dinner i think we should go have a few drinks (laughs) just so (laughs) oh my god and here they come right on cue and they're walking in and nick thank you so much for your time hi guys thank you for your time (laughs) i can't believe they walked in right at that point why has she got rosy cheeks why have they both got We've been putting some makeup on. Oh, been putting some just some makeup. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Pix. My pleasure. That is so funny that you walked in there. Really? We were just talking about you. Oh, amazing. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.